Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for coming. Um, my name is Reginald Harris, and I want to uh, start with a few regrets. Um, those of you who have tried to travel here today know that Friday at 5 p.m. in the rain is the absolute worst time to be in downtown Baltimore. Um, and so we apologize for that. I believe that we may have a few folks coming in a little bit later, but sorry for the late start, but we will get started. Um, I also wish to um, send the regrets of uh, Dr. Car Carla Hayden, our executive director, who is unfortunately ill today. I know she did want to be here to welcome you to uh, the library and our library system, and um, she's very sorry that she cannot attend. Those of us who work for her know that she went home and went to bed, so it's very unusual. So, um, so we, we apologize for her not being here, but I will be reading her remarks. Um, and uh, those will be the good parts, and then the parts that I sort of ad-lib will be fairly obvious. But in any case, good evening, and welcome to the uh, Central Library of the Enoch Pratt Free Library System, Baltimore's public library. We're honored to host and be a part of the 30th anniversary of Callaloo. We'd like to thank the Center for Africana Studies at the Johns Hopkins University for making all this possible. And also I want to thank uh, Dr. Raul and also Kyle Dargan for asking us to, to host this event. Uh, for three decades, this wonderful publication has been the premier literary journal for black writers and artists worldwide. And I went down into the stacks. Uh, we bind the older issues. Somehow we do not have number one. But, ladies and gentlemen, here it is, Callaloo, number two, February 1978. We have the entire run from here to now. We are very pleased to say that. Um, we're very proud to have this available for our uh, customers, along with other issues in both our African-American department and our periodicals departments. Um, also, and here's a little ad-lib part, we're also very pleased to have um, in our collection copies of all the books of all the speakers that you'll be, uh, the readers, the poets that you'll be hearing tonight, some of which are difficult to get now, which is somewhat unusual. We, you'll notice that we have, um, sadly, only one of Natasha's books and a few of Yusef's and uh, some of the newer ones of Carl's. We did approach our distributor and say, hey, these people are coming, can we get the books in? Um, they're not so there. So if you bought them earlier, they are collector's items, but they are also available at the library as well. Um, like tens of thousands of people who visit the library every year, uh, I, Dr. Hayden, and I have enjoyed reading the rich mixture of poetry, essays, fictions, and plays in every issue of Callaloo. This truly is one of the best publications in the world. Yes, yes. Um, as Callaloo celebrates its 30th anniversary, the uh, Enoch Pratt Free Library is also celebrating the Year of the Pratt. This past summer, after more than 35 years, we opened two, two brand new libraries here in the city of Baltimore. Um, the Southeast Anchor Library and the Orleans Street Branch have been well received and embraced by its communities. Every day, dozens of students and children fill these new facilities. And we are all hoping that among them will be future Pulitzer Prize and uh, other award winners who will also someday have their own work published in Callaloo. Uh, we have three very special guests tonight to help us commemorate this anniversary. And I also, there's a commercial, want to say that this is part of, we think of this as part of our continuing effort to uh, have programs and other events here at the library. There are copies of the Compass out inside for that. And I did want to point out, if I can embarrass Kyle a little bit, uh, Kyle Dargan and Don Lundy-Martin, a past and the current winner of the Kavikana uh, Poetry Prize, will be reading here on uh, December 2nd. But for tonight, to introduce tonight's uh, poets, I'm sorry, I've been thrilled about this for like months. That, that now here it is, and so I'm really excited. To introduce them and MC's tonight's uh, celebration is another award-winning writer and historian. Um, he's won the Gilbert Chenard Prize from the Society of French Historical Studies and has also published numerous essays and articles in a wide variety of journals and magazines about African-American literature and associate professor at Rutgers University, Professor Brent Hayes Edwards, also sits on the supervisory board of the English Institute at Harvard. And so please uh, welcome him and welcome our guests, and thank you so much for coming.
Welcome, everyone. We are going to proceed in the order of the program. I'm going to uh, give very brief introductions to our uh, illustrious readers. And after the three of them read, uh, we've decided to forego, forego the thrones this evening. So <laughs> our, our poets will, will remain in the audience. But after the, the three of them read, uh, they've consented to come back up. And if you have any questions or comments, uh, we'll, have a, we'll have a short discussion period. Our first reader is Carl Phillips, who is our cool calibrator of the syntax of desire, a poet whose verses unsettle themselves on the verge and in the wake, in the tingling premonition of the kiss, in the afterache of embrace. His books include In the Blood, which won the Samuel French Morse Poetry Prize, From the Devotions, Pastoral, which won the Lambda Literary Award, The Tether, which won the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award, The Rest of Love, which was the finalist for the National Book Award, uh, and the collection of essays, The Coin of the Realm. Some of his other awards and honors include the Tom Gunn Award, the Guggenheim Fellowship, and uh, the fellowship in 2006 from the Academy of American Poets. He teaches writing and African-American literature at Washington University in St. Louis. Please join me in welcoming Carl Phillips. Thanks, Brent, um, for that great introduction. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, Reginald, um, for hosting us. And... Um, it's a real honor to um, be doing this on this occasion um, for Callaloo. Um, I can't say enough um, in the way of thanks to Charles Rell for everything he's done, um, not just for me personally, but for poetry, um, and not just in this country, but indeed the world. So thank you, Charles, wherever you are. Maybe he's not here. Maybe he didn't come to the reading. Oh, here he is. There. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you made it. Um, <laughs> So, and it's a pleasure to be reading with Natasha and Yusuf. Um, here we go. I'm, I'm going to read um, four oldish poems and four newish ones, um, and, and I'm going to sit down. X. Several hours past that of knife and fork laid across one another to say done. X is still for the loose stitch of beginners, the newlywed grinding next door that says, no one but you, the pucker of lips only, not yet the wounds those lips may be drawn to. X, as in variable, anyone's body, any set of conditions, your body scaling whatever fence of chain metal X's desire throws up, what your spread-eagled limbs suggest falling, and now, after. X, not just for where in my life you've landed, but here, too, where your ass begins its half-shy, half-weary dividing, where I sometimes lay my head like a flower and think I mean something by it. X is all I keep meaning to cross out. I wanted to read that one because it's the first poem in my first book, but also because in some ways I feel like that's all I've been writing about all these years is um, the sort of strange mythologies we make of ourselves, of the self, um, versus the ones that are imposed upon us versus the way we represent ourselves, versus who we are, versus what we remember, versus what we can't track anymore, as whether it even happened. So, sort of one big old X. Um, sort of crossing race and sexuality. Blue. As through marble, or the lining of certain fish split open and scooped clean, this is the blue vein that rides where the flesh is even whiter than the rest of her, 
The splayed thighs mother forgets, busy struggling for command over bones, her own, those of the chaise lounge, all equally uncooperative. And there's the wind, too. This is her hair, gone from white to blue in the air. This is the black, shot with blue, of my dark daddy's knuckles that do not change ever, which is to say they are no more pale in anger than at rest, or when, as I imagine them now, they follow the same two fingers he has always used to make the rim of every empty blue glass in the house sing. Always the same blue-to-black sorrow, no black surface can entirely hide. Under the night, somewhere between the white that is nothing so much as blue and the black that is finally nothing, I am the man neither of you remembers, shielding in the half-dark the blue eyes I sometimes forget I don't have, pulling my own stoop-shoulder kind of blues across paper, apparently misinformed about the rumored stuff of dreams. Everywhere I inquired, I was told, look for blue. Feels very weird up here. As, as from a quiver of arrows. As from a quiver of arrows. What do we do with the body? Do we burn it? Do we set it in dirt or in stone? Do we wrap it in balm, honey, oil, and then gauze and tip it onto and trust it to a raft and to water? What will happen to the memory of his body if one of us doesn't hurry now and write it down fast? Will it be salt or late light that it melts like? Floss, rubber gloves, a chewed cap to a pen elsewhere. How are we to regard his effects? Do we throw them or use them away? Do we say they are relics and so treat them like relics? Does his soiled linen count? If so, would we be wrong then to wash it? There are no instructions whether it should go to where are those with no linen, or whether by night we should memorially wear it ourselves, by day reflect upon it, folded, shelved, empty. Here, on the floor behind his bed, is a bent photo. Why? Were the two of them lovers? Does it mean where we found it that he forgot it, or lost it, or intended a safekeeping? Should we attempt to make contact? What if this other man, too, is dead or alive but doesn't want to remember, is human? Is it okay to be human and fall away from oblation and memory if we forget and can't sometimes help it and sometimes it is all that we want? How long in dawns or new cocks does that take? What if it is rest and nothing else that we want. Is that a findable thing? Small? In what hole is it hidden? Is it maybe a country? Will a guide be required who will say to us how? Do we fly? Do we swim? What will I do now with my hands? Okay, moving to a more cruel tone. That's what someone told me. They said, you've become very cruel in middle age. And it, and it wasn't my partner who said that. Um, just a friend. So, can you do? This is called um, Forecast. Betrayal all along will have been the least of it. Some fall like empire slowly from the wild, more unmappable borders inward until reduced to history, to the nothing from which in the end history is made. And others, they fall with the dizzying swiftness of 
one of those seized-in-the-night kingdoms, chambers awash with the blood of princelings, their spattered crowns, toys now in the conqueror's fine hands. As for the common choice, the rote of exile that most call a life, days on end spent muttering about loyalty, tattooing the word who over one nipple, why just below the other, foraging shirtless among the animals, or worse, only watching them pass, blind but for instinct, beneath the stooped cathedrals that the trees make in a storm that forever, it seems, looks permanent. No, even slaughter will have been better, I think, than that. Next stop, Arcadia. There's a man asking to be worshipped only. He looks inconsolable, rugged, like those once popular but hardly seen anymore portraits, depictions really, of Jesus. There's another man. He wants to be flogged while naked and on all fours begging for it. No mercy. He says, make me beg. There's a field nearby, stretch of field, like the one they say divides prayer from absolute defeat. Here's where the pack horse, scaring at nothing visible, broke its tether. No sign of it since. You know this field, a constant stirring inside an otherwise great stillness that never stops surrounding it, the way memory doesn't, though memory is not just a stillness, but a field that stirs. The two men, they've gone nowhere. They've got questions, like which one's the field you can actually remember, and which one's the one you're only imagining now, standing inside it, staying there, stay, until it looks like home. Who are they to be asking questions? You look from one man to the other. You keep looking, but between submission or the seeming resistance that more often than not lately comes just before it, which is better? It's hard to decide the ugliness of weeping, or the tears themselves. I don't think this poem's supposed to be here. <laughs> yep, it is. It's called Late Empire. I mean after the lashing. After the welts that the lash gave rise to have healed so beautifully, we forget where they were. Here, we say, pointing vaguely, as toward a bird that could as easily be a sparrow hawk, any other falcon, as if it made no real difference now, though it must somewhere. It should, as between grand events and those that are less grand, or as when the Greeks described fate as a thing of substance, weighable on a set of scales, pourable into steep urns, one for happiness, one for woe, and the urns tipped accordingly by Zeus, as from the vantage point that only a god can have, he saw fit, which is only a way of understanding fate, not a form of acceptance not a road to get there. There's a kind of fragility that confounds appearances, where what little strength that the body has left to it, though almost none at all, seems inexhaustible. And there's a fragility that is most like what sex amounts to when stripped of justice and imagination. One more way of leaning up against 
and at the same time containing the fact of death, even as we ignore it or, for a time, lose track, wondering instead at the heave and shallow that the wind can be sometimes, as if the wind were a sea of water, the world presenting itself in the smallest of shards that very briefly surface. Then they fall back away. Words like torture and worshipful, winnow and chaff, fairness continuing to have nothing to do with it. No one gets to decide. Just look at all the damage I might never have done. Heaven and earth. For days now, vertigo, conqueror birds, place where suffering and a gift for it for a moment meet, then go their separate ways. I keep meaning to stop, to wait for you. Places where all but untrackably fear, which is animal and wild and almost always worth trusting, becomes cowardice, fear given consciousness of a finite existence in the realm of time, what exists and doesn't. Last night, a stillness like that of moss, like permission when it's not been given, yet not withheld exactly. Across the dark, through it, the occasional handful of notes, someone else out there singing, or myself singing, and the echoing after. I didn't know or want to. A map unfolding, getting folded back up again, seeming sometimes, even as I held it, to be on fire. It had seemed my life. What am I that I should stand so apart from my own happiness? The stars did what they do mostly, looked unbudging, transfixed, like cattle asleep in a black pasture, all the restlessness torn out of them, away, done with. I turn beneath them. I'll end. See, I said eight. It will be eight. It's important. This poem called Cloud Country. It's longer, but I hope it won't feel it. It's not in 12 parts, though, so it's not like that. Cloud country. As from a sea, as endless as we choose to believe it to be, at rest and in restlessness, its waves cresting, breaking, now the latest idea about moral freedom, now a memory of it that dims until no longer trustworthy, the stuff of legend. To wake each morning feels not like waking, but like having been washed up from dreamlessness onto a shore of our own hard making that gradually we've learned to stop trying not to mistake for the natural world. Cricket song giving to a field at night its fourth dimension? Or is that a recording? Or even more persuasive, not crickets at all, but something entirely machine-generated, downloaded, virtual. With all the physics of an inflexible law and, like catastrophe, hypnotic, it can seem as if this has, from the start, been the inevitable tendency. First, a blurring of all but the most crude distinctions, and then, to the blurring, a stone, Indifference, love and cruelty, humility and the affectation of it, benevolence and how's about I let you suck me off real slow. Who we were in a lineup beside four versions of what we've turned into and ourselves the victim, exhausted, confused, unable to say with any real certainty who did it, sure of nothing now, except what violation, if even that's correct, feels like, or more exactly, all the things it isn't. Not vengeance, proof of nothing, 
nobody's clear point of reference, not mutability, nor the blow-smitten thrall to it, nor the master of it coming back for more. Ah, the lies one sings to oneself against regretting, which we no more believe in than we do in forgiveness. Not forgive and forget. No. Our motto is no forgiveness without oblivion, after which, what can it mean to forgive when there's nothing there? It's not regret that we feel, but a soft disdain for our own inability to call the kingdom we've made out of fear, risk, outrage, and a schooled detachment, the narrow prison it so clearly is. There's life as we know it, and there is death, lots of it. In between, though, to the air at times a sense of possibility, its effect delusional, so that often we cannot help it, this feeling inside us so close to an almost uncontainable joy. Moments when we're as blameless as we're invincible. Nowhere a hunger to be undone by, to have suffered defeat beside. Just the jackdaws in all their ragged black shinery, part watch me, part close your eyes, and everywhere the summer roses that, after years of having tried to train them, we've let run rampant until their wildness is what we've come to love most about them, especially now, each rose completely blown open, for already it's summer again, that most delicate part of it, when the energy required to keep a life from faltering starts at first barely noticed to outweigh the desire to, and now slowly descends. Have we really gone past the point of saving ourselves, of sparing others? And though the chance to take even our smaller brutalities back keeps feeling far and then farther away, is it? The roses lie sprawled in stillness, as if broken at last by their own inadequacy. They lie as still as resistance. One by one, we say aloud the names that so long ago we took the time we cared that much to give to them. Such a stupid tenderness. Superstition. Gash. Blue vestige. Wash away. Thank you. seems somehow fitting that uh, the first book by our next reader, Natasha Trethaway, was selected by Rita Dove as the inaugural in 2000 winner of the Kaveh Kahnem Poetry Prize, because to a degree only approached by a few poets, including Dove um, in Thomas and Beulah, above all, Trethaway's work is an exquisite and unflinching engagement of what Jay Wright calls the dimensions of history and genealogy, the unsuspected rustle in the archive of all the things that can't linger because they are history. Her second book is called Belloc's Ophelia, and it won the Mississippi Institute of Arts and Letters Book Prize, as well as being a finalist for the James Laughlin Prize of the Academy of American Poets. And her most recent work, uh, the incredible Native Guard won the 2007 Pulitzer Prize. She teaches creative writing at Emory University. Natasha Trethewey. Thank you. Thank you, Brent. It is lovely to be here with all of you tonight, and I'm particularly delighted to celebrate Callaloo and its wonderful editor, Sir Charles Rowell. <laughs> Sir Charles is what I call him. I'm going to start with some elegies tonight. 
This first one has an epigraph from Robert Herrick that reads, Fair daffodils, we weep to see you haste away so soon. Genus Narcissus. The road I walked home from school was dense with trees and shadow, creekside and lit by yellow daffodils, early blossoms bright against winter's last gray days. I must have known they grew wild, thought no harm in taking them, so I did, gathering up as many as I could hold, then presenting them in a jar to my mother. She put them on the sill, and I sat nearby, watching light bend through the glass, day easing into evening, proud of myself for giving my mother some small thing. Childish vanity. I must have seen in them some measure of myself, the slender stems, each blossom a head lifted up toward praise or bowed to meet its reflection. Walking home those years ago, I knew nothing of Narcissus or the daffodil's short spring, how they dry like graveside flowers, rustling when the wind blew, a whisper treacherous from the sill. Be taken with yourself, they said to me. Die early to my mother. After your death. First, I emptied the closets of your clothes, threw out the bowl of fruit, bruised from your touch, left empty the jars you bought for preserves. The next morning, birds rustled the fruit trees, and later, when I twisted a ripe fig loose from its stem, I found it half-eaten, the other side already rotting, or like another I plucked and split open, being taken from the inside, a swarm of insects hollowing it. I'm too late again, another space emptied by loss, tomorrow, the bowl I have yet to fill. Myth. I was asleep while you were dying. It's as if you slipped through some rift, a hollow I make between my slumber and my waking, the Erebus I keep you in, still trying not to let go. You'll be dead again tomorrow, but in dreams you live, so I try taking you back into morning. Sleep heavy, turning my eyes open, I find you do not follow. Again and again, this constant forsaking. Again and again, this constant forsaking. My eyes open, I find you do not follow. You back into morning, sleep heavy, turning. But in dreams you live, so I try taking, not to let go. You'll be dead again tomorrow, the Erebus I keep you in, still trying, I make between my slumber and my waking. It's as if you slipped through some rift, a hollow, I was asleep while you were dying. Miscegenation. In 1965, my parents broke two laws of Mississippi. They went to Ohio to marry, returned to Mississippi. They crossed the river into Cincinnati, a city whose name begins with a sound like sin, the sound of wrong, miss in Mississippi. A year later, they moved to Canada, followed a route the same as slaves, the train slicing the white glaze of winter, leaving Mississippi. Faulkner's Joe Christmas was born in winter, like Jesus, given his name for the day he was left at the orphanage, his race unknown in Mississippi. My father was reading War and Peace when he gave me my name. I was born near Easter, 1966, in Mississippi. 
When I turned 33, my father said, it's your Jesus year. You're the same age he was when he died. It was spring, the hills green in Mississippi. I know more than Joe Christmas did. Natasha is a Russian name, though I'm not. It means Christmas child, even in Mississippi. My mother dreams another country. Already the words are changing. She is changing from colored to Negro, black still years ahead. This is 1966. She is married to a white man, and there are more names for what grows inside her. It is enough to worry about words like mongrel and the infertility of mules and mulattoes while flipping through a book of baby names. She has come home to wait out the long months, her room unchanged since she's been gone, dolls winking down from every shelf, all of them white. Every day she is flanked by the rituals of superstition, and there is a name she will learn for this too, maternal impression, the shape like an unknown country marking the back of the newborn's thigh. For now, women tell her to clear her head, to steady her hands, or she'll gray a lock of the child's hair wherever she worries her own, imprint somewhere the outline of a thing she craves too much. They tell her to staunch her cravings by eating dirt. All spring she has sat on her hands, her fingers numb. For a while each day she can't feel anything she touches. The arbor out back, the landscape's green tangle, the molehill of her own swelling. Here, outside the city limits, cars speed by, clouds of red dust in their wake. She breathes it in, Mississippi, then drifts toward sleep, thinking of some place she's never been. Late, Mississippi is a dark backdrop bearing down on the windows of her room. On the TV in the corner, the station signs off, broadcasting its nightly salutation, the waving stars and stripes, our national anthem. Southern Gothic. I have lain down into 1970, into the bed my parents will share for only a few more years. Early evening, they have not yet turned from each other in sleep, their bodies curved, parentheses framing the separate lives they'll wake to. Dreaming, I am again the child with too many questions, the endless why and why and why. My mother cannot answer, her mouth closed, a gesture toward her future, cold lips stitched shut. The lines in my young father's face deepen toward an expression of grief. I have come home from the schoolyard with the words that shadow us in this small southern town. Peckerwood and nigger lover, half-breed and zebra, words that take shape outside us. We're huddled on the tiny island of bed, quiet in the language of blood. The house, unsteady on its cinder block haunches, sinking deeper into the muck of ancestry. Oil lamps flicker around us, our shadows, dark glyphs on the wall, bigger and stranger than we are. Incident. We tell the story every year, how we peered from the windows, shades drawn, though nothing really happened, the charred grass now green again. We peered from the windows, shades drawn, at the cross trussed like a Christmas tree, the charred grass still green. Then we darkened our rooms, lit the hurricane lamps. At the cross, trussed like a Christmas tree, a few men gathered, white as angels in their gowns. 
We darkened our rooms and lit hurricane lamps, the wicks trembling in their fonts of oil. It seemed the angels had gathered, white men in their gowns. When they were done, they left quietly. No one came. The wicks trembled all night in their fonts of oil. By morning, the flames had all dimmed. When they were done, the men left quietly. No one came. Nothing really happened. By morning, all the flames had dimmed. We tell the story every year. Monument. Today the ants are busy beside my front steps, weaving in and out of the hill they're building. I watch them emerge and, like everything I've forgotten, disappear into the subterranean, a world made by displacement. In the cemetery last June, I circled, lost, weeds and grass grown up all around, the landscape blurred and waving. At my mother's grave, ants streamed in and out like arteries, a tiny hill rising above her untended plot. Bit by bit, red dirt piled up, spread like a rash on the grass. I watched a long time the ants' determined work, how they brought up soil of which she will be part and piled it before me. Believe me when I say I've tried not to begrudge them their industry, this reminder of what I haven't done. Even now, the mound is a blister on my heart, a red and humming swarm. I'm going to finish now with a a poem from a, a new collection that I'm working on. This is a, a four-part poem. It takes its starting point, uh, the Mexican Costa paintings. Um, Costa paintings illustrated the various unions in colonial Mexico and the children of those unions whose names and whose taxonomies were recorded in the Book of Costas. Taxonomy, after a series of Costa paintings by Juan Rodriguez Suarez, circa 1715. One, de Espanol y de India produce mestizo. The canvas is a leaden sky behind them, heavy with words, gold letters inscribing an equation of blood. This plus this equals this, as if a contract with nature or a museum label, ethnographic, precise. See how the father's hand beneath its crown of lace curls around his daughter's head. She's nearly fair as he is, Dad. See it in the brooch at her collar, the lace framing her face. An infant, she is born over the servant's left shoulder, bound to him by a sling, the plain blue cloth knotted at his throat. If the father, his hand on her skull, divines as the physiognomist does the mysteries of her character, discursive, legible on her light flesh, in the soft curl of her hair, we cannot know it, so gentle the eye he turns toward her. The mother, glancing sideways toward him, the scarf on her head, white as his face, his powdered wig, gestures with one hand a shape like the letter C. C, she seems to say, what we have made. The servant, still a child, cranes his neck, turns his face up toward all of them. He is dark as history, origin of the word native, the weight of blood, a pale mistress on his back, heavier every year. Two, de Espanol y Negra produce mulatto. Still, the centuries have not dulled the sullenness of the child's expression. If there is light inside him, it does not shine through the paint that holds his face in profile, his domed forehead, eyes nearly closed beneath a heavy brow. 
Though inside, the boy's father stands in his cloak and hat. It's as if he's just come in or that he's leaving. We see him transient, rolling a cigarette, myopic, his eyelids drawn against the child passing before him. At the stove, the boy's mother contorts, watchful, her neck twisting on its spine, red beads yoked at her throat like a necklace of blood, her face so black she nearly disappears into the canvas, the dark wall upon which we see the words that name them. What should we make of any of this? Remove the words above their heads, put something else in place of the child, a table, perhaps, upon which the man might set his hat, or a dog upon which to bestow the blessing of his touch. And the story changes. The boy is a palimpsest of paint, layers of color, history rendering him that precise shade of in-between. Before this, he was nothing, blank canvas, before image or word, before a last brushstroke fixed him in his place. Three, De Espanol y Mestiza produce Castiza. How not to see in this gesture the mind of the colony? In the mother's arms, the child hinged at her womb, dark cradle of mixed blood, call it Mexico, turns toward the father, reaching to him as if back to Spain, to the promise of blood alchemy, three easy steps to purity. From a Spaniard and an Indian, a mestizo. From a mestizo and a Spaniard, a castizo. From a castizo and a Spaniard, a Spaniard. We see her here, one generation away, nearly slipping her mother's careful grip. Four, the Book of Castas. Call it the catalog of mixed bloods or the Book of Not, not Spaniard, not white, but mulatto returning backwards, or hold yourself in midair, and the Morisca, the Lobo, the Chino, Sambo, Albino, and the No Te Entiendo, the I Don't Understand You. Guidebook to the colony, record of each crossed birth, it is the typology of taint, of stain, blemish, sullying spot, that which can be purified, that which cannot, Canaan's black fate. How like a dirty joke it seems, what do you call that space between the dark geographies of sex? Call it the taint, as in taint one and taint the other, illicit and yet naming still what is between. Between her parents, the child, mulatto, returning backwards, cannot slip their hold, the triptych their bodies make, in paint, in blood, her name written down in the book of castas, all her kind in thrall to a word. Thank you. Our last reader tonight is Yusef Komunyaka, who's been called, who's often called a jazz poet, which might mean that his writing sets its stake in the shadow of music, hewing at a short distance to the forms of music's moving, striving, as Albert Murray once described the jazz soloist, to maintain the dancer's grace at the pressure of all tempos. His books include Copacetic, Denkai Dao, Neon Vernacular, which won the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award and also the 1994 Pulitzer Prize, Thieves of Paradise, and Taboo, among others. Some of his other awards and honors include the 2001 Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize and the 2004 Shelley Memorial Award from the Poetry Society of Americas. He's taught at Indiana University, Princeton University, and is now the senior distinguished poet in the writing program at NYU. 
Yusef Komunyaka. It's a great occasion. Uh, thanks, Charles, for, for being a visionary. Thanks for being a dreamer. And thanks for Kalalu. Um, I'm going to start by, by reading a poem that, that is threatening to be, become a book-length poem. It has a long ways to go. Requiem. So, when the strong and holy high winds whiplash over the soul-off marshlands, eaten back to a sigh of salt water, the crescent city was already shook down to her pylons, her floating ribs, her spleen and backbone, left trembling in her old-world facades and postmodern lethargy, lost to waterlogged memories and quick-claim deeds, exposed for all eyes, damnable gaze and lamentation, plumb-lined and heart-throb, ballast and water taper, already the last ghost song of the Choctaw and the Chippesaw, long gone, no more, then a drunken curse among the oak and sweet gum leaves, a tally of broken treaties and absences, echoing cries of birds over the barrier islands inherited by the remittance man, Scalawag, and King Cotton, and already the sky was falling in on itself, calling like a cloud of seagulls gone ravenous as the guff reclaimed its ebb and flow chart while the wind banged on shutters and unhanged doors from their frames and unshangled the low ridge roofs while the believers hum, precious Lord, in deep river as the horsehair-plastered walls gallop along with the surge already folklore began to rise up from the barret, lallygag, and sluice, pulsing belief, the big easy, rolling between and through itself, caught and some downward tug and turn like a whirl of love affairs backed up in a stalled inlet and knelt down armor of cypress, a testament to how men dreamt land out of water where bedrock was only the hearts bump and grind its deep, dark churn and acceleration blows it down to those unmoored timbers already nothing but water mumbling as the great eye lingered on a question then turned the gauzy genitalia of Bacchus and Zulu left dangling from magnolias and rain trees already. I have, um, I've been, I've finished, I think, <laughs> a new book of poems um, um, entitled War Horses. I'm going to read um, some of those poems. First, I'm going to read a short series of um, quasi sonnets um, entitled Love. Love in the time of, of war. Here, the old masters of shock and awe huddle in the war room, talking iron, fire and sand, alloy and nomenclature. Their hearts lag against the bowstring as they daydream over disused bed, but to shoot an arrow through the bullseye. A twelve axis lined up in a row is to sleep with one's eyes open. Yes, of course, here stands lovely Penelope like a trophy, still holding the brass key against her breast. How did the even star fall into that room? Lost between plot and lute, the plucked strain turns into a lyre humming praises and curses 
to the unborn. They swarm down over the town and left bodies floating in ditches and moats, bloated with silence, blue with flies on the rooftops. They gave the children candy made of honey and nuts scented with belladonna to weed out the weak. Bundles of silk roll out like a rainbow for the women. On the wild forgetful straw beds, they created a race, a new tongue to sing occidental prayers and regrets. Their camphor lanterns mastered darkness. All the taboos of lovemaking were broken. Soon, laughter rose again from the fields. Tonight, the old horde work of love has given up. I can't unbutton promises or sing secrets into your left ear, tuned to quivering plucked strings. No, please, I can't face the reflection of metal on your skin and in your eyes. Can't risk weaving new breath into war fog. The anger of the trees is rooted in the soil. Let me drink in your newly found river of sighs, your way with incantations. Let me see if I can't strain this guitar and take down your effigy of moonlight from the cross, the dogwood in bloom printed on memory's see-through cloth. When our hands caress bullets and grenades or linger on the turrets and luminous wings of reconnaissance planes, we leave glimpses of ourselves on the polished hardness. We surrender skin, hair, sweat, and fingerprints. The assembly lines hum to our touch, and the grinding wheels record our laments and laughter into the bright metal. I'll touch your face, your breast, the flower, holding the world in focus. We give ourselves to each other, letting the work they slide away. Afterwards, lying there facing the sky, I touch the crescent-shaped war wound. Yes, the oldest prayer is still in my fingertips. Someone is beating a prisoner. Someone's counting red leaves falling outside a clouded window and a secret country. Someone holds back a river, but the next rabbit jab makes him piss on the stone floor. The interrogator orders the man to dig a grave with a teaspoon. The one he loves her name died last night on his tongue to revive it, to take his mind off the electorate wire. He almost said, there's a parrot and a blue house that knows the password, a woman's name. Okay, uh, I'm going to read just a couple of poems from the second section of the collection. Um, the warlord Gordon. He has bribed the thorns to guard his poppies. They intoxicate the valley with their forbidden scent, reddening the horizon till it is almost as if they aren't there. Maybe the guns guard only the notorious dreams in his head. The weather is kind for every bloom, and the fat, greenish bulbs form a galaxy of fantasies and beautiful nightmares. After their harvest, and mold into kilo sacks of malleable gray-brown potter, they cross the country on horseback, on river rafts, following some fallen star, and then ride 
men's shoulders, down to the underworld, down to rigged skills, where money changers and gun runners linger in the pistol whip hush of broad daylight. No, now it won't be long before the needle's bright tip holds a drop of woeful bliss before the fifth horseman of the apocalypse gallops again the night streets of Europe. I'm going to read um, uh, a couple of sections from, from the last poem um, in, in the collection, which is a this is a long poem. I'm going to read the first section and the last section of that series, um, Autobiography of My Alter Ego, which is really, um, which is really um, spoken by a white Vietnam veteran. This is how I... He's really a composite of, of many different voices. You see these eyes... You see this tongue, you see these ears, they may detect a quiver in the grass, an octave, higher, a lure, a little different, an iota, but they're no different than your eyes and ears. You can't say, I don't know, I can't say, I don't know how Lady Liberty's tilted in my favor or yours that I don't hear what I hear and don't see what I see in the cocksure night from Jefferson and Washington to terrace in hoods and sheets and a black man's head as he feels what's happening you can almost see and hear what's happening to him you see these hands they know enough to save us. I'm trying to say this true. I'm a cover artist's son, born to read between lines. But I also know that you know a whispered shatter in the trees is the collective mind of insects, birds, and animals witnessing what we do to each other. And the, and the last section, forgive the brightly colored viper on the footpath guarding a, a forgotten shrine. Forgive the tiger dumbstruck beneath its own rainbow. Forgive the spotted bitch eating her litter underneath the house. Forgive the boar hiding in October's red leaves. Forgive the stormy century of crows calling to death. Forgive the one who conjures a god out of spit and clay so she may seek redemption. Forgive the elephant's memory Forgive the saw vine and the thorn bird's litany. Forgive the schizoid gatekeeper, his law book's perfect excuse. Forgive the crocodile's swiftness. Forgive the pheromones and the idea of life on Mars. Forgive the lightning and the potter keg. Forgive the raccoon's sleight of hand beside the river. Forgive the moon calf and doubts call baby. Forgive my father's lustrous tongue. Forgive my mother's intoxicated lullaby. Forgive my sixth sense. Forgive my heart and penis. But don't forgive my hands. And the very last poem is Blue Dementia. Um, it's a poem from 
an in-progress collection. I don't know which one, but what can I say? In the days when a man could hold a swarm of words inside his belly, nestled against his spleen singing, in the days of night riders, when life tongue to read till blues and sorrow song call out of the deep night, another man done gone, another man done gone. In the days when one could lose oneself all up inside love that way, then moan on the bone till the gods cry out and someone sleep. Today, already, I've seen three dark-skinned men discussing the weather with demons and angels, and gazing up at the clouds, squinting down into iron grates along the five streets of luminous encounters. I double-check my reflection in plate glass and wonder, am I passing another Lucky Thomason, a Marin Brown, cornered by a blue dementia, another dark-skinned man who woke up dreaming one morning and then walked out of himself dreaming that this one there to step on a crack in the sidewalk to turn a midnight corner and never come back whole, or did he try to stare down a look that shove a blade into his heart? I mean, I also know something about night riders and cat gut. Yeah, honey. I know something about talking with ghosts.